Welcome to the 380th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Wendy Parmet, the George J. and Kathleen Waters Matthews Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University. She's the co-editor of Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19. Reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and be sure to send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 22nd, 2021, there are 5,153,222 deaths from COVID-19. It's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's a global tally. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Lillian Blancas, candidate for a Texas judgeship, dies at 47. This was written by Clay Risen and appeared December 10th, 2020 in the New York Times. Lillian E. Blancas, a widely respected lawyer in El Paso, always wanted to be a judge. She was expected to achieve her goal in a runoff election in which she was the favorite. Ms. Blancas died at a hospital in the city on December 7th, 2020, five days before the election, which, because her death came too late to remove her name from the ballot, she won. She was 47. The cause was COVID-19, her brother Moises Blancas said. Ms. Blancas was an assistant district attorney and public defender for nearly a decade before she opened her own law firm in 2019, came in first in a field of three, on November 3rd in the race for an open seat in El Paso's municipal court. Because she did not win a majority of the votes, the race went to an automatic runoff. Ms. Blancas was known as much for her tireless work on the part of indigent defendants as she was for her wit and charm inside and outside the courtroom. Among her many friends who called her Lila was her opponent in the runoff, Enrique A. Holguin, who met her in 2013 when he joined the district attorney's office. She helped mentor him, and she later took care of his dog when he went on trips. She was a straight shooter, very professional, but always polite, Mr. Holguin said. When we were on opposite sides of a case, we never locked horns. Lillian Elena Blancas was born in El Paso on May 2nd, 1973, to Victor and Maria Elena Montelongo Blancas, immigrants from Mexico who met while working at a meatpacking plant in El Paso. Her father later became a plumber while her mother stayed at home to raise children. In addition to her brother Moises, she is survived by her mother, another brother Victor, and a sister Gabby. Her father died in 2014. Neither of her parents went to college and it was important to them that their children received a good education. All four siblings graduated from college. Lillian received a degree in political science from the University of Texas at El Paso in 2002. 
Rather than go directly to law school, she spent several years teaching middle school science in El Paso. The kids just flocked to her because she had this no-holds-barred personality, said Christina Clays, a fellow teacher and friend. Blancas left teaching in 2006 and graduated three years later from the Texas Tech University School of Law. She quickly joined the El Paso District Attorney's Office. It was part of her plan, gain experience as a prosecutor, switch to being a public defender, hang out her own shingle, and run for a judicial seat. As a public defender, she handled capital murder cases and defended poor, often very young clients, said Heather Hall, a lawyer in the public defender's office. In her spare time, Ms. Blancas mentored lawyers who wanted to work with clients who were indigent or had mental health issues. Leela had this silver tongue as a lawyer, said Amanda Enriquez, a lawyer and friend, but she was full of empathy and compassion. Blancas tested positive for COVID-19 on Halloween 2020. Three days later, she won 40% of the vote in the election, sending her and Mr. Holguin to a runoff. The disease kept her from actively campaigning. She entered the hospital twice before being sent to intensive care where she died. This story comes from December of 2020. El Paso County at that time had been hit hard by the pandemic, recording 10,813 total cases per 100,000 residents. That's as of uh, December 10th, 2020, more than twice the statewide rate, while the city's intensive care units at that time were running at 97% capacity. After the election, Mr. Holguin, her opponent, texted her his congratulations. You're going to have a head start because I have COVID, Mr. Holguin said, she responded. I was ready to lose this election, he said but I wasn't ready to lose a friend. The obituary of Lillian Blancas, candidate for a Texas judgeship who died at age 47. This appeared in the New York Times. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Wendy Parmet. She's the George J. and Kathleen Waters Matthews Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University, where she's also the Faculty Director of the Center on Health Policy and Law. Professor Parmet is the author of numerous law review and peer-reviewed articles. Books include The Health of Newcomers, Immigration, Health Policy and the Case for Global Solidarity, co-authored with Patricia Illingworth, that appeared at NYU Press in 2017. Also, Populations, Public Health and Law, which appeared in 2009, and the forthcoming volume, Constitutional Contagion, How Constitutional Law is Killing Us, which will be coming out with Cambridge University Press in 2023. And we're going to hear about that. Professor Parmet is also Associate Editor for Law and Ethics for the American Journal of public health. Wendy Parmet, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation looks like there today. I'm calling from Newton, Massachusetts. We're just a couple of miles outside of Boston. Um, like much of the Northeast, uh, we are seeing a fairly significant rise in cases in the last two weeks after being in pretty good shape for the last several months, at least as compared to much of the country. Uh, the good news is that vaccination rates are relatively high, again, compared to the rest of the country in this area. Uh, hospitalization rates are rising, but not 
you know, as we've seen in past resurgence, as you'd expect in a area with large uh, high vaccine rates. The bad news is, um, you know, it's rising, and and we know we know we've seen before that um, rising can go exponentially fast. And uh, hospitals are still pretty full, not just with COVID patients, but we're hearing about overcrowding from, you know, all of the really sick people who had put off care for the last two years. So there's a stress on the healthcare system, even if it's not as it was in 2020, just from COVID patients. And the timing of that increase is, is really poor with the holidays right here as well. Exactly. So- What's happening at Northeastern? Is everyone back in class? You're still doing a sort of hybrid model? Some people no, we've been, we've been back. I'm not actually teaching this semester, but um, we've been back in class. We've, we're fully in person now. Uh, students are wearing masks, and there's a very extensive testing setup. I mean, you go into this massive gym, and all of the students are tested several times a week. Um, You know, there is certainly a steady trickle of cases, um, but we haven't seen uh, a real rise. And um, at least as far as I know, and we've been told, and it appears um, the cases are not really spreading so much from the class to, um, you know, within the class, but students are students and they have off-campus lives. Um, You know, we we have a vaccine mandate um, and so, you know, almost all of the cases are relatively, um, you know, not, not serious, serious. We'll probably come back to the discussion of mandates. I hope we will. Is that the kind of thing that the university leadership consulted with you and other law faculty about? I've always wondered how, you know, there's national standards for higher education, but oftentimes decisions about what happens at individual campuses, they do rely on their own on their own faculty to help decide those? Well, I was on a task force uh, that was put together pretty quickly last uh, December that looked into it. But I will say, I'm not quite sure. You know, they've made changes in policy since then. I have not been involved in that. One of the questions I've been asking guests, and I'd like to ask you, is if you could share a personal memory of the pandemic, something that really defines this time for you. I'm sure there's a lot of things, but I wonder yeah. if you wouldn't mind sharing. Well, can I share two ju- uh, two memories in juxtaposition? Please um, do. So late last, I mean, I started like many people, and I'm sure many people have been on your show sort of thinking about and working on the pandemic really last January, uh, not last January, two Januaries right now, January 2020. Don't quite realize how long this has been going on. Um, in late February, I went with my husband on vacation, really the last real vacation we took. And uh, on our last night, um, we went to a place where there was just enormous crowds of people um, eating, partying, listening to music, having a great time. And I, foolishly perhaps spent most of the vacation working on uh, a letter that uh, about 500 of us sent out to Congress on pandemic. And so the pandemic was very much in my mind and watching everyone and just this sense of this was 
they didn't know it, right? This was like the last bit of, of, of normalcy and sort of unburdened life. And then just three weeks later, I'm home. Everything's in sort of quasi lockdown and I need to get out. So I get into my car and I drive around Boston and it's a ghost town, a total ghost town. And those images is sort of that juxtaposition between, you know, the energy and, and joyousness of thousands of people just having fun and not, I think they didn't know what was coming, I think. And then seeing the city of Boston as a ghost town, I think will always haunt me. And that sense of how do you go back to that, I wasn't able to be there and enjoy it the way others were because I was thinking about the pandemic, but how to go back to that moment, that feeling, that pre-pandemic feeling. I suppose we will someday, but it's hard right now to imagine it. Do you think we will someday? I'm, I ask myself that question all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, some things will change. Obviously, things change. Um, something that is this impactful and has gone on this long um, does inevitably leave an indelible mark, and we can talk about what some of those might be. But it's also true that, you know, pandemics have come and gone before. And, um, you know, humanity rises and people forget, I mean, the, the almost amnesia that happened very quickly after the 1918 pandemic is, it was quite remarkable. I, I don't know that we're going to be able to quickly go to, uh, you know, the good, the jazz age quickly and, and yeah. forget about this quite that quickly. And, um, the scars this will have left on our country and our world, I think, are, are deep. But, you know, I, you know, people aren't walking around worried in, in most of the world right now about bubonic plague and that pandemic lasted hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. People, people do, humanity does recover. Now, thank you for sharing those those memories and those images and the images of the empty cities. I was going back and preparing a presentation. I don't know what it says. I guess we reached the point of this disaster where I'm now giving scholarly presentations about it, which makes me very uncomfortable. But um, and some of those early images of cities closed down and seeing them sort of juxtaposed once to another one, you know, New York and Boston, Wuhan. Um, it's jarring. It looks like there had been a, I mean, it looks like a a movie it kind of shows me how much i was sort of my mental space was prepared by fiction in some ways because i'd never seen anything like it or reading about the cold war or reading about nuclear preparedness in the cold war in which we imagined sort of empty cities and so your discussion of that it really brings back memories for me um that are strong ones and particularly a place like boston which my my in-laws, um, John and Susan Merling, live there. I have a lot of great memories of Boston. To think about Boston as a place that's closed down is haunting to me. It was very, very eerie. And this sort of palpable silence, which I have to say, I mean, the only other day I felt that same sort of silence and solemnity in the city was on 9-11. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't as empty. 
but it, there was just the silence, right? There was no, no, nobody just idling around or kidding on the streets. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Wendy Parmet today about COVID and the law. And let's turn, if we can, to, first I want to ask you about some of your work before the pandemic, particularly your book, The Health of Newcomers, Immigration, Health Policy, and the Case for Global Solidarity. Can you talk a little bit about that project and how maybe you, you see that project now, looking back through the lens of COVID? Sure. So that project emerged from you know, many different projects I had done beforehand, um, looking at public health law and noticing in so many ways how responses to epidemics um, often are often focus unduly on scapegoating immigrants, right, around xenophobia and sort of the role that xenophobia has played in public health response over the decades, over, you know, beyond that. Um, I had also done some work and actually had been involved in litigation in Massachusetts about the constitutional right for immigrants. Um, these are documented immigrants to have um, access to state-funded health care. And it really began leading all of these different things, letting me sort of see the interconnections, right? The, the, the ways in which we either other and separate people around health or the ways in which we can tie social solidarity for the benefit of the health of all. So we worked on this. Um, it, it came out in 2017 before the pandemic and really just at the start of the Trump presidency. So it's not a book in response to the Trump presidency. But I will say that at the very early start of the pandemic, uh, many of the things we had talked about seemed to be happening in ways that were both predictable and deeply troubling. And to give one example, and this is something we talk about in the book, you know, recall that in January of, of 2020, President Trump's response to the pandemic was the China ban. And what's a couple of things that are interesting about that China ban, so-called. One is, of course, it was based on nationality, not on exposure. The ban did not prevent American nationals um, or European nationals or others coming from China um, who might have been exposed to the virus coming into the United States without quarantine, without check, right? It was about keeping them out, right? Um, and, and that obviously led to a scapegoating and, you know, led to, and then the president and, and many others started calling it the China virus. And we saw the rise in um, hate crimes against Asian Americans. But it also simultaneously, right, served as a distraction and providing an illusion of safety, right? We just, you know, we put up the drawbridge, we build the invisible wall, right? Build that wall. And as if the problem was not inside our country, as if we did not have to prepare for the possibility of community transmission, right? We weren't stockpiling PPE. We weren't doing all the things one coulda, shoulda have done. 
in 2020, in January and February of 2020, we were imposing various bans on nationals. I mean, that's an old tried and true trope. Um, and we've seen that um, in this pandemic, but in other pandemics. Um, similarly, at the same time, right, a whole bunch of policies that were put in place um, some predating the Trump administration and some by the Trump administration increase the vulnerability in, in dramatic ways of um, non-citizens. And I want to just give you one example of this. And this is the kind of thing we talked about in the book, although the book was written in 2017. So um, in the spring of 2021, uh, I was very happy to finally got my turn to be vaccinated. Um, I went to one of the mass vaccination sites in the state of Massachusetts. If you had gone to the state's website, you would have seen that you did not need to have an ID, you did not need to have health insurance. But I go to this site, it's actually, it was at Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. They've got a huge operation going and a big queue where people are waiting online for get your vaccine. And every, you know, whatever, 50 feet or so, there's a pole with a sign saying, have your government ID handy, have your health insurance card handy. Now, you weren't supposed to need that, but they kept telling you you needed it. And when I finally had my turn and the nurse um, is about to vaccinate me, I asked her, I said, I took out my ID and I said, what would have happened if I didn't have government ID? Hmm. And she said, I don't know. I don't know what we could do. And I said, you know, the vaccine is not supposed to be limited to people with government issued IDs. And she said, well, we were told to ask. I don't know what we could do. Now, I, I state that because, I mean, that's an example, one small, but in my mind, somewhat powerful example of the way that policies and rhetoric, even sometimes not thinking, um, Right, impact communities. I mean, if, if someone doesn't have an ID, if they're undocumented, you're going to see all those signs and you're going to get out of that line and not get vaccinated. The state of Massachusetts later did mobile vaccination units in, in communities with high numbers of immigrants. But those kinds of things, um, and I could go on and talk for hours about all the different policies, um, help to explain why immigrant communities had much higher rates of, of COVID mortality and morbidity than many others in the country. Well, you've raised a lot of really important things here. The, just first quickly on this powerful example about the um, signage in the vaccination line. I don't know if you're comfortable answering what ifs, but if, if it had been a second Trump administration, would they've had the power to try to do that, to actually limit, to, to either require in a way that might stand up in a court, some sort of documentation that people were not immigrants uh, or to have to show their status or literally to bar them or to create a priority in which immigrants were served second or later or never with vaccine. I hadn't even thought of that until that, that grim scenario you just painted there, which was an over uh, an afterthought, a carryover of the Trump years for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if that had happened, I'd be the first one arguing that it was that they didn't have that power. But I think I also need to say that the courts afforded President Trump and another president's extraordinarily broad discretion when it came to 
COVID-related policies and over-immigration in general and COVID-related. So you could think about um, in February of 2020, the Supreme Court affirmed President Trump's public charge rule. And without going into all the details, this is incredibly important and dramatic change in government regulations related to immigrants documented immigrants, the public charge rule doesn't affect the undocumented, and um, really created immigration risk for using certain health benefits, for being unhealthy. There's a fair amount of empirical work showing that the public charge rule, which went into effect in 2020, it was like one of the first things I ever tweeted out was, talk about bad timing. there's a lot of empirical evidence showing that it kept people from going to doctors, getting tested, getting vaccinated, getting their kids insurance. And the Supreme Court upheld it, even, you know, as the pandemic was creeping towards us. So I'm not confident that the courts would have struck that such a policy. Let me and going back to the um, to your book that we were just talking about, the health of newcomers, and, and you're saying it's not the first time um, that this is actually kind of a long tradition of using public health law in conjunction with or to form sort of immigration policy. Is that, I mean, what cases do you have in mind here? I mean, thinking of the AIDS crisis, well, other yeah, sorts of AIDS crisis diseases? is a good example. You know, it wasn't until the 2000s that the United States lifted the HIV travel ban, right? So even though um, AIDS was very prevalent in the United States when the ban went into effect. Um, Even though there was community, you know, there was transmission happening in the United States. And even though it was not unlike COVID um, airborne and, you know, easily transmitted, um, we banned non-citizens from coming. And it's one of the reasons the International AIDS Conference stopped coming into the United States for many years, because you know scientists could not come to the United States if they were HIV positive to present their research. Um, you know, it made no sense, right? Epidemiologically, as a public health measure, it made no sense. What it did do was again conflate you know, fear of a disease with xenophobia. Let me give you one other, perhaps even more dramatic example with AIDS. Um, We quarantined, detained Haitian immigrants on Guantanamo Bay. You know, where did this idea of using Guantanamo Bay as a prison camp come? Well, it comes from what we did in the 90s to uh, refugees from Haiti, boat people who were HIV positive. They were screened, they were taken to Guantanamo and screened, and if they were HIV negative, they were allowed to come as to prove that they're refugee status and come to the United States. If they were HIV positive, they were kept indefinitely until a court finally found this unconstitutional and a settlement was reached behind barbed wire without health care for the crime of being HIV positive at a point in which the, you know, the pandemic was prevalent in the United States. We weren't keeping AIDS out. 
But what we were doing was sort of cementing this stigmatization, right? They, Haitians, and of course there is xenophobia and the racism, we're intermixing, right? They are the health danger. Um, so we have a long and pretty ugly history. And I could give you many other examples if we went further back historically. Well, I, and, and just to underline your crucial point here, I mean, the, the one is, is sort of policies that get crafted and applied in the moment, um, which may be reinforcing pre-existing um, immigration ideas with any given political party or, or president, thinking of Trump there particularly, but there must be other cases, but also what it does in terms of public perception of disease. And that's a crucial point you're just making is it makes a diseased other, which has two, at least two nefarious effects, one of which is it, it reinforces the worst impulses of you know, xenophobia and racism, but also it gives people perhaps, a, and I think this happened with COVID, a false sense of security that so long as we keep, you know, the airports closed, we're all good because that's a an Asian or a Chinese. Uh, and I don't like to repeat what Trump, I'm not going to say it quite that yeah, way, but no, the virus brought in by people from somewhere else. And meanwhile, what's happening in American ICUs, they're filling up. And, and that's exactly what happened here in 2020, right? We ban, ban travel, ban the travel by Chinese citizens to the United States as if we're safe. And of course we weren't safe. Um, it, it got worse. Then when he banned your travel from by Europeans to the United States, you might remember there was a rush of Americans who were coming home. They were kept in these unbelievably overcrowded passport control lines, right? There was no effort to screen or quarantine or check or contact trace the Americans because it was the Europeans that were the danger. And then it went and it's still in place, the remain in Mexico policy where the CDC is using its public health powers to prevent, right, Mexicans and migrants coming from Mexico. Again, the conflation of um, public health and immigration policy. And this was put in place that remained in Mexico at a point in which COVID was far more prevalent here than it was in Mexico. I mean, right, the Mexicans are saying the danger is the disease coming from the US to Mexico. It's not the disease coming from Mexico. So we do this often, and you're exactly right. It both, it both, adds to the stigma and racism, but it also um, distracts and it gives that false sense of illusion that keeps us from addressing the health problems we need to face in, domestically. Is there something special about the US legal system that, uh, that makes it different from other countries in, in this regard or gives the executive branch specific powers here that it might not have in other types of disasters? Well, it is certainly true that our legal system gives the president far greater discretion around immigration than about other issues. And indeed, many of the jurists who are quite um, skeptical about broad administrative power and may be quite willing to clamp down on the power of CDC or EPA or OSHA seem, you know, much less skeptical about immigration power. So that's certainly true, but I, I'm not sure it's as different from other countries, as you say. And one of the things um, 
I learned while researching the book was, you know, we, it's pretty common in the United States to say uh, every other country has universal health insurance, right? We say that all the time. Well, it turns out that's not true, right? Everybody has universal coverage for their citizens, but almost no country actually provides comprehensive or equal or anything near equal coverage for many classes of citizens, uh, non-citizens, especially you know, irregular migrants. And, and the discrimination and the scapegoating of migrants is unfortunately pretty common. I mean, we've seen it certainly in Europe in recent years. We see the crisis that's going on at the Polish-Belarus border. So that's, and, and we've seen, I mean, we could talk about what, you know, the Australian response to COVID, but Australia has sealed itself off and treated migrants and kept them, you know, in islands far away, locked up for a long time. So this is an area where the United States may not um, be as different as we think. want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Wendy Parmet today uh, about the law and COVID. And I just want to draw some attention, Wendy, to your Center on Health Policy and Law and Public Health Law Watch. And everyone needs to, I'll put up the link here in a second, check out the many different publications and broadcasts, including the hashtag COVID Law Briefings that you and other colleagues were engaged with. You told us at the top, I mean, before people really had conscious, uh, consciousness of COVID, you and your colleagues were already uh, collaborating around this, but you got to work very quickly. Tell us a little bit about the center and sort of your initial impulse to begin to do this kind of contextual translating work. And I asked that as a person who had the same impulse, but I was about a month behind you even, I think. Well, I um, so briefly the center um, is one of the Northeastern University School of Law's centers of excellence. Um, our goal is to bring together students and scholars from across disciplines, it's very interdisciplinary, to study, research, and discuss a wide range of health policy and law issues. We also run several projects. Um, and one of those projects is Public Health Law Watch. Now, the Public Health Law Watch comes out of something called the George Consortium. Um, and if we have time, I can tell you where that name comes from. But this was a group of around 100 public health law scholars and practitioners um, formed in 2012 to really connect the field of public health law, which is a field that really had sort of come to life and really matured in the prior decade, and to support the promotion of public health through law. Like, how could we use our legal skills to make a difference in the world? Um, the Public Health Law Watch is the consortium's sort of activist part. Um, you know, it's, it's where we and the consortium work to um, make a difference. We write amicus briefs, we file and sign amicus briefs, we have a website, we've done regulatory comments, um, and 
we've worked on several different COVID related projects and very early in the pandemic, we used that network that we've created through the consortium to say, okay, what can we do? You know, we've got to do something. We got to do something. Um, and the first, well, one of the first things was um, this letter that I talked about where about 500 scholars wrote a letter um, to policymakers and experts about what we thought needed to be done that went out, um, I'm going to say in February, but maybe it was March 1st by the time it actually went public. But then the next thing we did was the briefings. Um, and we, you know, there we all are, <laughs> you know, at home. Um, how can we connect? And, and we thought that the public health law world and policymakers would want to hear from legal experts around a range of legal issues. I think we were all getting called a lot by the press, you know, can they do that? Can they do this? What about that? And so um, Public Health Law Watch uh, our, and our legal fellow sort of produced um, these briefings that went out three times a week over Twitter. Um, and then we're archived also in a podcast um, in the week of health law. Um, we worked, I worked really closely with Scott Burris from Temple Law School, Nick Terry from McKinney at Indiana, uh, McKinney University, Indiana University McKinney, Lance Gable from Wayne State, Donna Levin from the Network for Public Health Law, and Sarah DeGaia from Change Labs. And we invited people, this sort of much like this conversation. Sometimes we'd have like two people and a, and a moderator and we talk about a topic, you know, federalism, contact tracing, telehealth regulations, you know, sometimes big picture, sometimes more in the weeds. Um, and we did this for several, we did this for quite a long time. And along the way, we realized we really needed to do a report that people really wanted a, a depth of analysis that went beyond the conversations. And that's what led to the Rapid Legal Assessment Project. Well, I wanna, I wanna talk about that as well. I'm just, um, before we turn to that, I wanna ask you about your, the way you think about the impact of, of those briefings. And because when I started COVID calls, my perception was, uh, that, and this is just following years of disaster journalism, that journalists, all of a sudden, there may be one environmental journalist at a newspaper, even a, even a big newspaper like the New York Times now will have more, but most newspapers will maybe have one person on the environmental beat, which then they suddenly become the disaster journalist. And I'm assuming for the law that may be more, but maybe not, and that they were going to all of a sudden, people who are writing on the sports desk, and it turns out I think this was true, Everyone's now COVID desk. And what was one thing that I could try to do was to bring people in my research network, oftentimes, and we were working in sometimes esoteric areas around disaster studies and sociology and humanities, public health, whatever it may be, that these discussions, first of all, were a place that we could keep each other from going crazy and just have a more than one at one on one phone calls, but actually have a larger discussion, but that it would tee up or create a sort of a, a mezzanine level where journalists could find this discussion when they didn't have time to call everyone. I still don't know how to assess how effective that was. I did, we did get a lot of discussion with journalists, some of which has turned into longer, um, I think more impactful relationships, but that was my hope in that moment. And it sounds like some similar impulses were animating what you were doing. 
absolutely. I mean, <laughs> including the keeping us keeping us sane part and, and keeping us connected, um, but also to get the word out. Um, I think journals, but also policymakers, you know, we were trying to reach policymakers. We concomitantly with the project and the briefings, we did a bunch of briefings, um, non-public for different groups, like the National Association of Governors and, uh, and, and congressional committees, um, sort of off camera. So it was also to get the word out. I mean, there was, you know, it's it's in in the early days in 2020, um, in the first few months, there was a tremendous hunger to understand what public health law was. Most people, even most lawyers on the, you know, journalists on the legal beat, really had no idea. Like now everybody knows what this means, you know, everybody knows these terms, but, um, you know, our field has not necessarily been the big headline field. And, and I mean, most people go through law, most lawyers have never taken a course in public health law. I mean, they're ending up discussing bits of it, but they don't even know they're doing it, right? They don't actually know the framework. They don't know sort of the big cases. And so we were just getting a lot of, how does federalism, what can the states do? And, and create, you know, things were happening then. You might recall there were states that were putting up quarantines and trying to block Absolutely. people from coming across the state lines. You know, you couldn't go to Rhode Island if you were coming from New York. So there was a real hunger just, we thought, for legal expertise. Um, and so that was the impetus behind the briefings and, the, and then the, the reports. Well, let's turn to the reports, the assessing legal responses to COVID-19. And this is how I found you. These are phenomenal volumes. Oh, and you. I just have to say, um, as I was looking through the chapters also, um, there's a lot of people in there who've been on COVID calls like Ross Silverman, Lindsay Wiley, um, and uh, and I think a few others probably as, as well. And um, so they're teams of authors in many cases many issues which, and so these are scholars who are already working in public health law, and then they use COVID as a case to um, either shine light on certain continuities, but I think in other cases to show where there's novelty or unsettled questions in the law, which are literally unfolding in the moment. And then the editorial collective also, um, you know, as you said, I think it's meant to be read by policymakers and policymaker staffs, and, and you make recommendations in there. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, you know, the process, I mean, the editorial board was the same folks I mentioned before with the briefings. Um, and we made some decisions, and I should say uh, we got support from Robert Wood Johnson, the Devoe Mount Foundation, and the American Public Health Association. We made some decisions early on that we wanted to have this in a uniform template. We wanted people to focus on concrete suggestions and everyone had to come up with suggestions. You know, we didn't want this to be long, you know, law, legal academics can easily write 80 page articles and we've all done that. We wanted this to be something that policymakers could find useful um, to be rigorous, but not right not scholarly, theoretical, arcane, right? Be, be, be concrete and useful. So we used our networks to, uh, we used the George Consortium 
um, we identified topics and invited people to write and to do it in this very clear format. Um, everything was edited a couple of times and revised. And what's really remarkable is how quickly we got right the first of all like almost everybody said yes i mean it was just remarkable the willingness of our colleagues to to do this um and everybody was so busy and under so much stress um to just get it done to conform to a format that might not have been you know the most comfortable and um it it and to try to make it Though they were very, here's here's what could be done. Here's what shouldn't be done, and um, and it was really I thought, I mean, it, I thought it worked out quite well. Um, we got it out by around August first, twenty twenty, which is really quite remarkable when you think about it. Um, with over thirty six chapters, um, and then we did a second round um, for February of, of twenty twenty one that was really written more, and we asked people, "Don't restate what you did, but but look forward now, lessons learned, and new advice for the new administration." And some of those, you know, the, the ways that these kinds of recommendations could be applied. I mean, one of these was about the restructuring of the CDC. Um, could say a little bit about that. And I'm curious what kind of uptake you've gotten on some of these ideas. Well, not with that one, but I would say I think a fair, a, a good percentage of the recommendations that were in the first volume and some in the second really actually have been implemented, not all, by the Biden administration or were in the um, American Rescue Plan Act. Um, so, you know, we, you'll let us take some credit for that, although I'm sure there are other, other factors. But um, so I think, you know, and many of the things we've done and many of the uh, that we recommended and many of the things that our experts suggested, some of which are really kind of in the weeds, but nevertheless important, uh, you know, from opening up ACA, open enrollment. I mean, we can go in the weeds. The CDC recommendation is, is certainly one that has not um, been followed. It, 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 it arises from the recognition that um, the CDC was met with a lot of political in interference in um, especially the Trump administration. I mean, we wrote this before one could assess the Biden administrations. And, you know, really sort of a thought experiment. Would things have been better off if CDC had been an independent agency, for example, along the lines of the Federal Reserve? And the recommendation that the scholars that we ask to review this, because by the way, we, we chose scholars, we did not tell them what to recommend, um, was to consider moving this um, CDC to some type of independent, some kind of agency run with an independent board. Um, you know, I personally think there are pros and cons to that, but I think it was a really valuable exercise and certainly a lot of people have talked about it. It's gotten a lot of debate and discussion about what can we do to rebuild the CDC's, the trust that the public has with the CDC to ensure that the science is not 
um, subtly but little interference. And one of the things that the, the recommendation, uh, the chapter discusses, which I think is important is, you know, the real recognition that the science is one thing and what you do with it and the policies are another, right? So you want the political actors to make, you know, the policy decisions based in which the science should inform, but other factors can inform policy decisions too. It's not like, you know, epidemiology is the only thing out there. There are values, there are laws, there's the economy, right? There's other, there are other issues that, need, that the policymaker needs to take into account. But, but the, the thing you don't want is it to go backwards and have the, right dissemination of the science itself corrupted because of the concern for the policy outcome. Just want to maybe follow up with a couple of, of questions related to, you know, how you see some of the trickiest issues around COVID playing out. Maybe these are things you've written about in the volume, assessing legal responses to COVID-19 or your, or your own sort of sense of it. One of, just to this issue um, around speech, and disinformation and COVID. And I mean, it's the kind of question I was having, you know, conversation around the breakfast table with my 13 year old son the other day about this. And it came down to, cause we talk about, of course, 13 year old, we talk about free speech a lot. Um, does the president or any public official have the right to lie about science and public health um, facts, data in the middle of a pandemic or any kind of disaster? So, you know, this is a, we don't have a lot of law on this. Um, in an article that is coming out in the uh, University of Illinois Law Review, my colleague Claudia Haupt and I um, actually wrote about this. And um, we analogized uh, that kind of scientific misinformation by health officials or by officials who have authority over health, you know, so I'm not talking about the, the letter postal carrier, right? I'm talking about officials with authority over health. We analogize that to professional malpractice. And we argue that it should be subject to um, legal review just as we review malpractice. You know, we, we use, we, we toss, free speech is obviously a very important and very dear value in this country, but we toss it around a lot. Um, and we, we tend to do it casually and in ways which lose the nuance um, of both its actual application and its history. I mean, if, if, if you went to your physician right now and said, and, you know, should I get a COVID vaccine or should I just take ivermectin every day? And your physician said, well, no, take ivermectin. That would be malpractice if you then didn't get vaccinated, took ivermectin, got COVID, and got you know serious outcomes. That would be malpractice, and you could sue. Um, your physician could also lose their license. Right. Not likely to happen, but could. But could. Um, we do regulate the speech of professionals, um, and appropriately so. And the Supreme Court has recognized that. And, you know, to some extent, if, the, if and now I'm being hypothetical, if the head of the CDC said, well, vaccines can kill you, ivermectin can help you, 
it has a similar effect because although it isn't in the physician-patient relationship, like the you know the doctor-patient case, um, they're giving health advice that people don't hear as a part of a political conversation. They hear it as this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. right. It's different than saying we don't believe in mandates or we believe in freedom. Right. I mean, you know, we could debate that. Those are normative questions. But if you say vaccines, you know, put chips in your body or magnetize you, that's misinformation. And, and that can be deadly. And I we don't think and I, uh, you know, that, that free speech applies there or should. And, and also, by the way, just to be clear, free speech doesn't apply to government speech in any case. Right. I mean, the government can sanction the government. CDC does not have to give both sides to an issue on its web page. Government speech is not subject to the First Amendment. This is where I'm, I'm going to be watching this and, and reading your work so closely as we come into this next election season, because it seems to be shaping up that along roughly partisan lines, I think pretty clearly partisan lines, that um, there's going to be a electoral gain to be made from misinformation around around COVID. And I wonder about, and so maybe that's just, and that's politics and, and uh, if an unelected person can take the mic and say, you know, ivermectin is this and the vaccine is that, maybe that's okay, but then somehow the legal status of that speech changes once they become the governor or they become the president. That's the part that is confusing and, and concerning to me because one of the lessons I think to a lot of us has been throughout this that expertise, which has already been under attack, is now just in tatters. Yeah. No, expertise is in tatters. And unfortunately, I mean, we're dealing with a confluence of uh, threats, right? And, and they're all interrelated and they're feeding off of each other. There's the infodemic and the misinformation. There's the political polarization that feeds it. There's the a loss of trust of expertise, which, as you said, is in tatters, but has been tattering for a long time. Um, there's, you know, there's just a whole bunch, and, 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 and there's social inequities and, and social division. And all of these factors are kind of interrelating in, in this perfect storm that has so undermined our capacity to respond to this pandemic. Um, you know, we've had misinformation in the past. There's been resistance to public health in the past, but I don't think we've ever had all of these factors interrelating in the same way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very dangerous and it's very scary about what it means for the country moving forward. Talking to law and society scholar Wendy Parmet today on COVID calls, I want to make sure we leave a couple of minutes to talk about your work in progress, Constitutional Contagion, How Constitutional Law is Killing Us. What's this project about? Well, this is a project that tries to understand, I think, many of the different issues we've just been talking about and trying to look at the role that American law and particularly constitutional law has played in creating the various social vulnerabilities to COVID, in creating our dysfunction politically around COVID. Um, I'm also interested in exploring what, well, first of all, in, in retelling 
how our understandings of freedom right now in relationship to public health are really very different than her historical understandings. Um, just how much the law has changed in the past two years is really almost breathtaking. Um, I think that many things that we say, well, it's the Constitution and it just has to be, we take for granted, but actually these are dramatic differences in law. Um, give you one example is, is the approach to expertise. I mean, for most of our history, courts were exceptionally deferential, perhaps excessively so to experts. Now, barely, you know, they, they just, the, the almost annoyance with experts is really quite shocking. Um, so I'm looking at the changes on our understanding of freedom. Um, I'm arguing that we now have a very um, thin and perhaps only one-sided, one side of the coin understanding of freedom. We've lost other conceptions of freedom that were more embedded in um, ideas of social compact and the common good. We've lost that common good tradition. And ultimately, um, our, our problems with COVID, I think, are related to our deeper problems. We were not a healthy country in 2020 going into it, and we're a less healthy country now. So I'm trying to understand these different threats and how our law, our understanding of what the Constitution is and how we use it, have both the court decisions and its um, popular, popular rhetoric around constitutionalism has actually enhanced our vulnerability to COVID, but to any disaster. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, the next pandemic, the next epidemic, climate change, whatever, um, these vulnerabilities are not um, specific to COVID. Thank you for reminding us the history of freedom also has to do with freedom from disease. And I really I, I can't wait to to hear more about this because, you know, this slippage into freedom as I guess the, the right to say anything you want to about science, even if it hurts you or other people, which is to, obviously, I, I have a position on this, but I mean, such a twisting of the notion of, of why we created these expert institutions in the first place, which was itself an expression of a form of freedom, which was not inexpensive. Right. And, you know, in 1905, the Supreme Court famously talked about real liberty is liberty under law. You know, that wasn't a vaccine mandate, Kate Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Your, your liberty is not only your liberty against government. It's also the liberty that comes from living in a functioning um, community, right, where, where right. laws can protect you against the other, against disease, where you have laws that, you know, make sure the sewage gets taken away and the traffic stops at the red light. And uh, we've lost that. We, right, we're increasingly seeing our liberty in very narrow individualistic terms, even in the face, and this is what's really dramatic, even in the face of a lethal um, airborne disease, right? I mean, you might have thought that if anything would have pushed us too far in the opposite direction, right? You know, think about all the movies like Contagion and Outbreak sure. and, you know, people are going to be, you know, you worry about the panic and you worry about people pushing it so far in that direction. And yet 
the backlash has actually been stronger than whatever prolash. I'm making up a term here, but we've come out. We're coming out of COVID if we're if we if that is what we are doing. Um, with a very frayed understanding of the common good, whether it's about information, whether it's about vaccines. I mean, what's happening now is, you know, we're seeing states that had vaccine mandates for kids against polio and measles and pertussis, long controlled diseases. And now they're beginning to challenge and roll back those laws. It's as if any law now is, is, any public health law is now seen as problematic, which is really a dangerous place to be because we're not really all living on our own in the you know in the wild west. We're 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 breathing on our neighbors in the in the, in the supermarket. We should probably wrap up, but I just that one little final question I wanted to to bring to you is: Are you what are you tracking right now in terms of cases that are coming before the Supreme Court or other? important cases that might set new uh, precedents related to COVID? Well, I mean, the big issue right now, um, really big issue is one, vaccine mandates and um, the religious liberty issues. The uh, court has dramatically changed its approach to religious liberty in the past year. Um, since Justice Barrett joined the court. I mean, it's really been a dramatic 180 degree change. So we're looking, you know, at those cases, but also the OSHA case and the cases about federal authority. And these cases, depending on when they come to the court, it's right now before the Sixth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit won the ping pong ball and the lottery. These cases might tell us a lot, not just about vaccine mandates, but about the federal government's capacity to protect occupation protect workers' health and maybe protect, you know, all kinds of other health. Um, the decision by the Fifth Circuit to enjoin the OSHA mandate was exceptionally broad and raised all kinds of insinuations that would really roll back the regulatory state for 120 years. Um, so, you know, I don't, I'm not saying the Supreme Court's going to go like that, go there. I don't think they would go that far, but um, we're seeing increasing threats. The anti-regulatory sort of libertarian um, push is, is certainly something to keep an eye on. I just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today, for me at least, is a two COVID calls day. So since I'm in the future in South Korea, it's uh, November 23rd and at 5.30 p.m. Tuesday, November 23rd, please join my call with sociologist Kyle Cleveland uh, from Temple University, Japan, and we'll be talking about covid in Japan, that's 3.30 a.m. Eastern time in the U.S. So for anybody who can't sleep, please join me for that. And I really want to thank Wendy Parmet. And I guess through you, also thank your colleagues uh, who've been engaged in this work. And for the time you took today discussing it, I really hope we get a chance to have you back to talk more about it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.